Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, and it did take me three months to come up with the naming structure uh, for our Sunday volunteers. But this morning, this morning, I am so thankful to be with you today. I'm so thankful to be with you at the start of the semester. Uh, we have uh, one more week. Next Sunday is when we're going to get back into our spring-long series in the book of Romans. We, stop, we stopped in December uh, right in Romans 8, and so we'll be picking up in Romans 9 next week. But before we get there, before we launch into our spring series, studying the book of Romans verse by verse, week by week, Today, we're focusing on really what makes us a church. We're focusing on these core tenets, these, these four pillars of Grace Bible Church. And this is true for every one of Grace campuses. If you didn't know, Grace has four different campuses here in Bryan College Station. Southwood is just one of those four. But every single one of us, every single campus stands upon the same foundation. We all have these same pillars that are supporting us that have essentially defined the way that we operate, the, the, the values that we hold, and the behaviors that should just identify anyone that is a part of Grace Bible Church. And the reason that it's important for us to pause every once in a while, uh, every year or two, and look at these pillars is because foundations are crucial for any structure, right? For any uh, building, for any group of people, for any organization, for any family, you need some form of foundation. You need this kind of bedrock that you sit upon. And an incomplete foundation, what it does is it sets you up really just for failure, right? A strong foundation is what you want when you're buying a house. When you're searching for homes and you're walking around, right, it's, it's nice to look at the countertops and the tile floors, and it's nice to look at the fixtures and all that stuff, but, but the real, one of the things you need to pay very close attention to is the actual foundation. You've got to make sure, like, hey, is this level? Like, hey, why is this part of the house underground? You know, like, that's what you need to pay attention to. We know it's true for structures, but it's also true not just for buildings. It's important for us as a church. Because if we have an incomplete foundation, if we are uncertain or unaware of how, of what defines us, then eventually what it brings is pain, frustration, and, and, and stagnation. An incomplete foundation will inevitably, inevitably fail. And every single aspect of this foundation is important. You might check three of the boxes, for example, but if there's four or five boxes and you've missed a couple, I mean, it's it's not going to work right. It's something that we see in homes and buildings. It's something we see in this example uh, right here. Welcome to Jurassic Park. might have all the best visuals, the greatest special effects that the early 90s can offer. And yet, if you cut out that John Williams soundtrack, you bring out the orchestra and you throw in a melodica, well, you're in for a world of hurt. You're in for a world of frustration. The foundation, if it is incomplete, it's going to bring failure. You're not going to accomplish the mission that's been set forth. You're not going to flourish in the way that you want or in the way that you should. 
And it's true for buildings, it's true for movies, it's true for our church. And so what are the four pillars of Grace Bible Church here in Bryan College Station? It's the grace of God, it's the word of God, it's every nation, and it's the next generation. That's what it is. That's what we stand upon. That's what we started with just about 60 years ago as a church. These are our core values and our core strategies for how we should function. And so if you are a part of Grace Bible Church, if you are a part of Grace Southwood, we need to remember these things and we need to pursue these things in our functioning as a church. And so this morning, we're going to be looking specifically in 2 Timothy. If you want to go there in your Bible or go there on your phone, 2 Timothy, we're going to be jumping all over the book. But what we find in 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 1, is essentially Paul speaking to his disciples, speaking to his, quote, son in the faith. The very final letter that Paul wrote before he was executed. The final message that he got out. The final message that we have recorded in our scripture from him. He's instructing Timothy, this man that he had discipled, this man he had developed, this man he had deployed for the mission of God's work of church planning and multiplying disciples. Paul is writing to Timothy and he's giving him essentially these kind of closing parting words, this closing charge for how to live and how to function as a believer, as a follower of Christ who makes more followers, as a disciple who makes disciples. And so in 2 Timothy, Paul actually lays out the reasoning and the, 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 the purpose of all of these pillars. These, these pillars that we have as a church, it's not something that we created. It's things that we found from God's word that we landed upon. Our conviction is saying, yeah, this needs to be the bedrock. This needs to be the foundation of our church because this is what the Lord has said through apostles like Paul, through Christ himself, through all of our scripture. So what we see though, starting in 2 Timothy chapter one, is essentially Paul laying out all of these pillars for Timothy, a young church planner. And he starts in 2 Timothy chapter one, verse seven, saying this. He says that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Right, when Paul is speaking to Timothy, when he talks about this spirit, he's not just speaking about uh, your immaterial self, the human spirit. What he seems to be talking about, what most biblical scholars agree with because of the context of this, of this verse, is Paul is speaking to the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who indwells every single believer. When I put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I receive God's Holy Spirit who serves as my comforter, my counselor, my instructor. He's a down payment on my eternal inheritance. So Paul says that, Timothy, you have been given, all believers have been given the Holy Spirit. And, and he's not a spirit defined by fear or timidity of anxiety or frustration. He's a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. So do not be ashamed, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, a prisoner for his sake. But by God's power, accept your share of suffering for the gospel. Paul tells Timothy, look, you need to move forward empowered by the Spirit, not consumed with fear, but instead empowered, emboldened, motivated by the Spirit of God. But recognize, Timothy, that as you move forward, it's not that God's gonna send you forth and nothing's gonna touch you, right? You're bulletproof. 
He says, as you move forward, as a follower of Christ, recognize that, yeah, there's gonna be difficulty. Paul himself, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm a prisoner right now because of my allegiance to Christ. He says, and in the same way, you will have to accept your share of suffering. You'll have to suffer alongside of me. This is something that we talked about a little bit last week in Matthew 16. Jesus told his followers, he says, you're gonna have to take up your cross. If you wanna follow me, you've gotta deny yourself and you've gotta take up your cross. You're gonna suffer because of your allegiance to me as your Lord and Savior. Paul says, look, Timothy, this is just a part of the role. He says, but in that suffering, you don't have to be ashamed. Why? Because he, the Lord, verse nine, is the one who saved us. And he's the one who called us with a holy calling. And he called us not based on our works, but on his own purpose and grace, granted to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Paul says this is why we can move forward with power and boldness. This is why we don't have to be defined by fear and trepidation. He says we can move forward with boldness because we follow the Lord. The Lord who has called us to this life. The Lord who has called us to this mission. And he is the one who is ultimately in control. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one that has brought us to himself. And it's not based on our performance, right? It's not based on our works. But instead, God's grace, his love, his power is given to us because he is gracious. Simply because it is his purpose, right? This is the beauty of our gospel, This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that every single one of us were dead. We were all dead in our sin and our trespass. We were all open rebels against God, enemies of the Lord Most High. And yet in our death, in our failure, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could ever live, to die the death that we deserve because of our sin and failure. And then he rose on the third day to prove, to validate his message, his power over sin and over death, to to clarify for all of humanity that if we call on his name, that's how we are saved, that if we trust in him, we're free from sin, we're free from shame, we're free from condemnation. And it is not because we earned it, it's not because we deserved it, it's not because we attained some measure or mark of, of partial perfection, but instead it's because God is merciful, because God is gracious, because God has a purpose for those he calls to himself. Paul says this is why we move forward boldly, because we serve a holy, a mighty, a powerful, and a loving and gracious God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, one of the pillars that we recognize as to be a part, a part of this foundation of our church is that we are people who receive and then reflect the grace of God. We recognize that we first are recipients of God's unmerited favor. That is grace. We've received God's grace. And so as recipients of God's grace, we become people who reflect that grace, who extend that grace. We experience the grace of God and then we extend the grace of God to the world around us. This is what we're called to. This is why Jesus told his followers in John 13 that everyone will know you, my disciples, by this. 
right? Everyone is gonna know that you are my disciples by this, if you have love for one another. This is the defining attribute. This is a part of the foundation that we receive and reflect the grace of God, that we love one another just as Christ loved us. And greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. God calls us to a sacrificial love because that's what he has shown us. And yet, this isn't always what defines us, right? Even as we read this, this charge from Christ, even as I'm talking about the grace of God, I know that there's a part of us that's like, oh, I don't know if that always works out, right? And I've been a part of different Christian circles or communities over the years where I haven't always been super loving, or maybe I'm in a group that isn't defined by its love. I've had the privilege and the honor to be in groups that were defined by that. I remember when I was in later high school, I was in a Bible study, a youth Bible study with a bunch of other juniors and seniors in high school, all these guys. And I remember it was so Invigorate. It was such an incredible blessing to my life because we all kind of had come to this sort of ownership of our faith at around the same time. And God in his grace kind of called us and fired us up for Christ. And I remember we were always inviting others to come and be a part of this. So even though we had 20, 30 guys that were consistent in this group, oftentimes on a Wednesday night, we'd have 40, 50 guys show up. And I remember bringing one of my really good friends who wasn't a part of that study to, to the Bible study one night And I think it was the only time he came because what was so unfortunate for him wasn't that he he wasn't turned off by us being super, you know, mean or cruel or anything. But instead, I remember this friend of mine, Nathan, he came to our group and he, we were like, you know, had the Bible study, got to know each other, did all this stuff. And afterwards we were talking and he was like, man, he's like, it was like super weird how much y'all love each other. I was like, yeah, dude. All right, let's go play football or whatever. You know, I don't know. I, I didn't play football, right? But let's, let's go watch a show. You know, like that's, that, was, that was what just kind of rocked him on his back feet. He's like, what is going on? I remember that so vividly that he was just amazed. And it's true. We had this love for one another not because we all thought each other were awesome, but because we followed the same Lord, we had the same Savior, we'd received the same grace, and so we reflected it to one another. And even some of those guys to this day are my best friends. These men of God who, who want to follow him, who love the Lord, and then also love the people around them. This is what should define us. And yet, the truth is that grace is very difficult. Grace is difficult. It's true in our families, in our friend groups, in our workplace, in our classes. It's difficult to show grace at all times. We fail at this all the time. I fail at this, showing grace to those that I love the most. I still find myself withholding grace, withholding love, being quick to anger or quick to frustration, being selfish, right? Grace is difficult. It's one of the reasons that I had a buddy that worked at a summer camp and they had to outlaw certain, it was a Christian youth camp, and they had to outlaw certain terms for describing certain kids, right? At the end of the summer, at the end of the week, they would give kids special words to be like, this, you know, this is what defines you are inquisitive, you have honor, or whatever. And there were these go-to terms that became essentially backroom code for the other counselors, where you would get to the end of the week, and you say, Billy, you are energetic. And everybody knew 
Billy's roof, right? That's what that meant. You have a lively spirit, right? Like that means he's hard to deal with, right? And so literally the camp had to outlaw certain terms to be used for those character qualities. Grace is difficult. And that's why if we wanna reflect the grace of God, we must rely on God's ability to empower, to motivate, to, to push us forward. All right, this is why Paul told Timothy in chapter two, we're skipping ahead a little bit. Like I said, we'll be all over. But if you look in 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 23, Paul tells him, he says, you must reject foolish and ignorant controversies because you know they breed infighting. You've got to reject these foolish and ignorant. Literally, the term ignorant there is like, it's silly or meaningless. These silly controversies because you know they bring about this infighting. Warfare is the literal term. And the Lord's slave, verse 24, must not engage in heated disputes, but be kind toward all. An apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness, right? He says, it's not that you just, you know, completely detach. It's not that you just, just dismiss all the things that happen in the world around you. It's not, a, not that. He says, but you want to avoid the silly or the unimportant controversies, you want to avoid this infighting. He says, but you still teach, right? You're still patient. You're still kind. You still bring correction. He says, but you correct with gentleness. And he says, as you do this, perhaps, perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth. Perhaps. And then they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap where they are held captive to do his, the devil's, will. All right? Paul says there is going to be a time where you are tempted to give in to this infighting, this, this conflict. He says it's not that all conflict is wrong or all, all conflict is bad. He says, but there is some that is pointless. He says, and you need to reject that. You need to avoid that. And instead, you correct with gentleness. You engage where necessary. He says, but, but notice this. He says, but even as you engage, even as you correct with gentleness, he says, you need to remember that it's not up to you. You're not gonna change anyone's heart. I can never be someone's Holy Spirit, ever. That is a, that is a hard truth to really live by. And it's something that's really hard for us, maybe in a, in a, in a marriage or in a friendship in particular, or in a workplace where we say, gosh, I, I just want to change the way you think. Oh boy, you're wrong about that. And there's a part of us that says, maybe if I just say the right thing, or I give the right argument, or if I just show you all these facts and figures, like you, you'll come to the knowledge of the truth. But even to Timothy, Paul's saying, no, no, no. Remember that even as you engage where necessary, he says, you're, you're hoping, you're praying that perhaps God Perhaps God will grant them repentance. Perhaps God will then bring them to knowledge of the truth. So even in the conflict that is necessary, he says, you have to remember that God is the one who's in control. God is the one who can change hearts. It's always been true. It always will be true. Again, that's not a, that doesn't mean that we all just completely detach and we just float above the world. But Paul says, as we engage, we do so reliant on the ability of God, 
Right? So we reflect grace through God's ability and empowerment. We stand on that portion of our foundation. Right? That is one of our pillars, knowing that we are saved by the grace of God in order to show the grace of God to the world around us. In the same way, we recognize that we stand upon the word of God. Right? Paul says this to Timothy back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Paul says, hold to the standard of sound words that you've heard from me and do so with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So protect that good thing entrusted to you through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Hold to the standard, the pattern, literally the term. He says, hold to the pattern of teaching, of sound words, of doctrine that you heard from me. And you hold to this you know, this, this truth, this intellectual knowledge with what? With, with airtight arguments, with PowerPoint presentations? No. He says, you hold to the sound teaching with faith and love that come through a relationship with Christ Jesus. And so again, we need to recognize, Paul's not saying that, that words alone or factual learning is enough to, to, be, to find salvation, to be delivered from the bondage of decay that sin has brought us to. He says it's all still dependent upon our faith in Christ, the love that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. He says, but through that faith, through that love, hold fast to this sound teaching, this pattern of teaching. Protect this good thing. This good thing he's speaking about, he's speaking about the gospel. He says, protect this gospel, this good news of Jesus that has been entrusted to you. So as you engage, as you move through life and ministry in this world, he says, you have to hold fast to what is true. This is why as a church, as followers of Christ, we are people who study and who speak God's truth. Every single morning before I, or every single Sunday morning before I stand on the stage, I have certain prayers that I kind of walk through. And one of the things that I pray every single week is that, that the Lord would speak through me, that this wouldn't be a, a, an opportunity for me to try to prove myself or gain uh, recognition. It's not a time for me to, to try to be impressive. It's not a time for me to try to win you over. It's a time where I need to just be the mouthpiece. I need to be the conduit by which God speaks to you. Because again, I can't change your heart. I know that. I did junior high ministry long enough to know that I will never change a person's heart. The Lord has to speak. And this is why we become students and proclaimers of God's word, of God's truth, that his truth, his words are the authority. It's not mine. It's not yours. We study and we speak God's truth. This is really important for us because we have opportunities in our workplaces, in our homes, in our friend groups to, to speak truth. And so often it's tempting to just say like what we think, or this is my opinion on this, or this is how things should go. And it, it's not that our opinions are unimportant or invalid, but we need to remember that, that if there is an event or an issue or a problem, that whatever the Lord has directly spoken about that, the principles that lead, he's laid out, the wisdom that he has shared, is always better. It's always better. And so we should not shy away from sharing this truth, 
right? I remember having a friend in college that she, uh, you know, grew up a little bit of time overseas, sometime in the States, just sort of all over, and a lot of time with her family. And so when she came to college, she was, you know, had missed a few social cues, wasn't quite, you know, up to speed on peer interactions. And that was fine. She wasn't like super weird or anything, but she like just had some interesting quirks. And one of those quirks that was discovered about midway through college was that when someone would get, you know, that, that thing that happens where it's like, right? What's that called? A hiccup, right? Yeah. Everyone knows this, except for this friend of mine, who whenever there was that, we discovered, she said, oh, wow. And somehow it just came out. It just came out one time with some of her friends. I wasn't there, but there were other friends that were there. And she was like, oh, gosh, yeah, I got, the re- I got some really bad hiccup-ups right now. And they're like, what did, what did you say? So I have, I have, I have really bad hiccups. They're like, Sarah, who broke you? Right? Like, what? <laughs> what has happened? But she had gone through life, never realizing that I'm assuming some, you know, cute term. Maybe she said it as like a toddler and her parents were like, oh, my gosh, hiccups. I love that. Right? And they just kind of let it go. And she was 20 years old, a legal adult who could vote for the president of the United States of America. And she was referring to hiccups, right? That's what she still had because truth had never been delivered to her. Now, thankfully, truth was given in a gracious manner. Probably could have been more gracious, but it was delivered. (laughs) And that's what we're called to. We should be people who speak truth when necessary, but we do so in a gracious manner. This is what we read at the beginning of, uh, or back in the fall, about this revelation of Jesus, right? John's first chapter is this beautiful, this beautiful just unraveling of the person of Christ and his eternal nature. And he says that the word became flesh and he took up residence among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, the the one who is full of grace and truth, who came down from the Father. Jesus is described repeatedly in scripture as the one who's full of grace and truth. He spoke truth, but he did so in a loving, gracious manner. And for us, sometimes we fall more heavily on one side or the other, right? Sometimes we love that truth hammer. And other times we're just a little too gracious. If we only speak truth, we don't bring the love that, that motivates people to change. If we are only just telling people what they want. We're just affirming, affirming, affirming. We're not bringing the truth that they need to to develop into what God wants them to be or who God wants them to be. And yet for us, the truth is, is that silence is, because we see that tension, we're like, gosh, that seems really hard to manage. And so what is our default? We say, well, I'll just, I'll just keep quiet. I just won't say anything. Silence is really attractive. It's really attractive. I, I just don't want to get involved in this. You know what? I know they're having this issue right now, these like two friends of mine, but I'm just kind of like, they can just sort that out, right? I've got this issue in my marriage. I see this problem in my community group. I'm just, you know, they don't need me. And you know, sometimes maybe we should be silent, right? If we look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, there were times where he was silent, where, you know, people are complaining about taxes and Jesus is like, hey, we're just we're going to give to Caesar what's Caesar's. We're going to pay our taxes. 
There were times where people were hurling lies and insults at Jesus himself. He's under persecution and he was silent. He just took it. And yet there were other times where Jesus called people out. When he saw injustice, when he saw a perversion of of religious views, he would speak loudly, boldly. And it brought rejection. It brought pain and persecution. But in the life of Christ, we see this balance, this this truth, but also this grace and this time of silence and this time of speaking. And for us, this is what we are called to. But it's intimidating, right? It's very, this is a difficult calling. And this is why if we want to speak the truth of God, it demands our submission to God's authority. This means that we need to be people who are under the word of God, who are learning from the word of God, who are studying this in community. I'm in a community group here at Southwood and we're learning from 1 Thessalonians. This is an important thing for us to be studying the word of God. If we don't know it, then we can't show the world what God's truth is. I remember being in a class my senior year of college, psychology of religion. And as we were going through this class, we were learning about all these major religious uh, uh, groups. And eventually we got to Christianity. And I was like, oh man, here we go, here we go, right? I'm working part-time as a junior high guy at Grace Bible Church. Like, all right, here we go, let's go. Because we've been walking through, you know, all Taoism, Buddhism, Hindu, you know, all the other isms. And we were walking through these other religions. And I was like, man, Christianity's coming. This is, this is it, my time to shine. And I remember the TA of that class, she was talking about how, you know, Jesus was really important. He was a very an interesting figure. And that he's had all these similarities to all these other religious leaders. And so I remember in class, like, thinking, like, gotcha. Gotcha, girl. And I raised my hand. I said, yeah, but um, Jesus... Uh, didn't stay dead. Like that was what was different. He rose from the grave, right? So he was like God. He actually was God. Like he claimed to be God. Got her. And they all became Christians. It was amazing, right? (laughs) No, what happened was the TA looked at me, this like, you know, 40-year-old something TA, and she was like, yeah. She's like, oh, okay, that's sweet, Uh, 20-year-old. She says, um... She's like, but that's, you know, the thing is, is that actually in Jesus' ministry, he actually refers to himself as the son of man, you know, however many times, like 78 times. And so it seemed to be he was, you know, really just telling people that, maybe he was really just trying to tell people that he was a human. He's the son of man. Why would he say that he was the son of man over and over and over again like that? And I didn't know what to say. I was just like, uh... That was it. Now, coming out of that, I realized, like, wow, I need to study this. And over time and study, I began to realize, oh, this allusion to, or this term of the Son of Man, he's, he's, he's using a, a, a pro- prophetic term, a prophetic title as seen in Daniel 9, where he's talking about the son of man who would descend with the clouds and establish a kingdom that will never end. Like he was saying, hey, look, I am the Messiah. I'm the one who's going to come in power and strength and set up a kingdom that never fails. That's what the son of man actually is referring to. Like, yeah, I mean, there's an element of that maybe where he's, it's, it's his humanity, but it's also a pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah, the chosen one. But at that time, I didn't know it. Why? Because I hadn't sat under the word of God. I didn't study 
I wasn't submissive to his authority. And I thought I could just go around and say what I wanted to say and prove my points. It was humbling. It was disappointing. If we want to move through life, if we want to speak the truth of God, we need to be students of the truth of God. This is why we talk about being in Bible studies and community groups here at Southwood all the time, because we know it is so vital for us as followers of Christ to be sitting with the word of God in community. If you're not in that, I would encourage you, come by the welcome desk, talk to us about how you can be a part of that this spring. We stand on the grace of God, the word of God. We also are focused on every nation. This is the charge of proclaiming the message that Paul gives Timothy in chapter four. He says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. All right, so he's setting up this charge. He says, this is it. This is the big launch you out into the world. This is your charge. Preach the message. Preach the message. Be Ready, whether it's convenient or not, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and instruction. Preach the message, persevere, be persistent. That's literally, when we say be ready, that's the Greek term for persistence. Be persistent in every season to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with complete patience and instruction. For there will, not, there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. And instead, they're gonna be following their own desires and they'll accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an insatiable curiosity to hear new things. It says, you're not always gonna find people that wanna hear this message, right? That's just the truth. There's gonna be those who reject it, who don't tolerate it, who, who wanna follow their own. They, they're literally, he says, their ears are, wanna be tickled. He says, they wanna tickle their ears with something else. And so they're gonna turn away from hearing the truth, but on the other hand, they're gonna turn aside to myths. This shouldn't be surprising. We see this in our culture. People wanna reject truth and they just wanna run after whatever they think sounds good. And as wild and unrealistic or as just, just unhelpful it might seem, they say, no, no, that's it. Like, that's what, yeah, that's who I am or that's what I pursue. That's the lifestyle that I'm gonna buy into. And it's, it's tragic, but it's not unexpected. Paul says, Timothy, you're gonna face this rejection to the message that you should be proclaiming, but it, you still proclaim it, right? You, however, you should be self-controlled in all things and you endure hardship and you continue to do an evangelist's work you continue to preach this message, to share this message, this good news of Jesus Christ. You do the work, he says, and as you do this, what are you doing? You are fulfilling your ministry. You are fulfilling the mission that God has given to you. This is why you're here. This is what you're called to, to go to all people everywhere, to, to, to obey that great commission, to, to, to make disciples of all nations to teach them what we've been taught, to show them Christ and the good news of the gospel. He says, that is your ministry. That is your mission. Fulfill it by proclaiming this good news. And so we as followers of Christ should be a people who are asking the Lord continually to expand our perspective, to give us eyes to see the need to proclaim this good news to the world around us, to the neighbors, the friends, the coworkers, the classmates that need to hear this good news. We should be people who are constantly looking out and reaching out with this good news of the gospel. I remember asking our kids, my wife and I asked our kids a few years ago. Now they're 975, but they're younger. And we were talking about like the president of the country or something. 
And I just asked, I was like, hey, yeah, do y'all, do y'all know, like we're talking about the president, do y'all know what country we live in? And they're like, yeah, College Station. <laughs> I was like, you bet your britches, right? now." I said, well, not quite. There's a little bit more, right? Also Brian, right? Like that's, <laughs> but they, they had no perspective. And the truth is that we fall into the same trap and we just get comfortable in complacency. We think, you know what? I'm just gonna kind of live in my little bubble. And this is good. I'm cozy. I'm just going to kind of keep on keeping on. I'm going to talk to those two people that I like to talk to. I'm going to have these interactions that I know like are easy. And again, it's not that comfort is wrong, right? Being comfortable is not sinful. But if that is our pursuit, if that's our goal, if that's the mission we're trying to fulfill is, is our own comfort, we've missed the point. We've missed the point. Paul says you should be doing the evangelist's work. You look out, you reach out, you find the people who need to hear this good news of Jesus Christ and you extend it graciously. You extend this truth with grace and compassion. It's the same thing that Jesus did in his ministry. In Matthew 9, he saw the crowds and he had compassion. He was moved in his gut because they were bewildered and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus wasn't moved because they were sick. He wasn't moved because they were hungry. I mean, those things were true and he did meet some of those needs. But what really moved him, what really got him going, what stirred his gut? They were bewildered and helpless. They were sheep without a shepherd. They lacked direction. They lacked purpose. And so he preached the good news. That by grace through faith in him, we can have salvation. We can have purpose. We have a ministry to fulfill to every nation. And as we look out, as we expand our perspective, as we ask the Lord to do that, we also look forward and we remember that there's a new generation, that there are messengers, not just a message to proclaim, but there are messengers to prepare. This is what Paul tells Timothy in chapter two. So you, my child, be strong. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, remembering, apart from him, we can do nothing. In Christ Jesus, this is what you do. What you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust this to faithful people who will be competent to teach others as well. You take what you've heard, the sound teaching, the sound doctrine, what you heard me say, you instruct it, you entrust it to faithful people who are competent, literally the Greek term is able, just other faithful people who are able to teach others as well, right? There's a generational continuation of this good news of Jesus Christ. We're always looking ahead. We're always asking the Lord to equip his people. And sometimes this is very, you know, self-evident where we see it with young ones. I mean, praise the Lord. I you might, if you were here last week, you heard me say, hey, we had uh, 22 spots that needed to be filled. We had the need for 22 more volunteers in our Grace Kids ministry across 9 a.m., 11 a.m., Wednesday mornings. I got a text this morning from our children's coordinator. She says, hey, we have, we have filled up this, 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 this. We've actually, over the last week, they've, 16 people came through and have done their applications and interviews. 16 out of 22, phew, we're good. That's amazing. We still need nine, six more people for the 9 a.m. service in, in Grace Kids in early, early childhood. So if you have that ability or desire, talk to us at the welcome desk. But, but 
working with kids, I mean, yeah, that's like, yeah, next generation. Right? It's very clear. They're, they're children. And the truth is, is, it's very valuable. Children's ministry, youth ministry. The reality is that Barna did a study, found about 65% of Christians come put their faith in Christ before the age of 18. Just about two-thirds of Christians. In fact, about 95% by the age of 30. So our, our ministry, our work with those that are younger, who are the very evident next generation is important. But the truth is that it's, it's more than just people who are physically young. Right? The next generation could be any of us. All of us are, are a part of continuing this message of Jesus Christ, this good news of the gospel. And yet what's tragic is that we just get caught up in our self-interest. And it's, it's natural for us to drift towards that. It's natural to get home after a long day I, I will drive up to my house after working all day and I'll think, oh, you know, there's things that I want. There's things that I need. I'm like, oh, I want to, you know, rest or I'm hungry or I'm tired or whatever. And it's so easy for me to forget that I'm pulling up to a home where there are four other people that all have very legitimate needs that need to be met. It's not all about me. So for every single one of us, we drift towards self-interest, but we need to remember that the greatest life, the greatest legacy of a life is not measured by what is gained over that life, but it is measured by what is given. That's the greatest life. The greatest importance of a leader is not what happens in their presence, it's what happens in their absence. The legacy that we leave is so crucial. And so just like Paul is gonna say in chapter four, he says we should be emptying ourselves out. And it's by the grace of God that as we empty ourselves, we find fulfillment from the Lord. Here in the U.S., we have about 4,000 churches. There's a study that came out a few years ago. About 4,000 churches shut down every year in the U.S. 4,000. And about 1,000 churches are planted every year. Right? So 4,000 close their doors, 1,000 open their doors. Out of that 1,000 that open their doors, about half of them are going to close their doors again in the next like two, three years. But if we were to keep up with population growth, we actually would need to plant 2,000 more churches every single year here in the U.S., just the U.S. So we're not planting churches quick enough. This is something that really weighed on the hearts and minds of Grace Bible Church elders and staff 16 years ago. 16 years ago, Southwood opened its doors. It was the first plant at Grace Bible Church, the, first, the second campus. And so 16 years ago, it was a wonderful, monumentous day, and people were excited and pumped. And it was, ama- it was amazing to see how, how Anderson, our original campus, was able to send people and resources and money and finance. They, just, they were able to support this opening. And pretty much right after they planted Southwood, Southwood just fills up. Anderson filled back up. The need was great. And so about nine years ago, Grace Bible Church elders, they said, okay, we're going to open another campus in South College Station. Creekside. Why? Because it's an underserved area. There are, there's immense population growth, like residential growth in South College Station, but there weren't any churches going down there. And so we had meetings with other churches, even in town, saying, you think about planning down there. Like, think about planning in South College Station. Church planners come in every single year. They would meet with us. We'd say, hey, really think about it. It's hard. There's not as much uh, space availability down there, but man, think about ways to go and plant in South College Station. And Creekside, that's just filled up. Three years ago, we said, there's an underserved population in Bryan. And so we planted Midtown. And it's a, it's a bilingual campus. 
They, speak, they have a Spanish service because we recognize that the city of Bryan now is 40% Hispanic. Statewide, Texas is 40% Hispanic. Bryan is 40% Hispanic. Nationwide, U.S. is 20% Hispanic. And it's growing. And so we recognize, hey, we need to be serving this population. We need to equip these people to go and to, to plant further churches, to make more disciples in their language, in their culture. And so Midtown has grown over the last three years. And what we've realized is that as we have, and there's 16,000, I forgot to say, there's 16,000 Hispanic students at Texas A&M right now, 16,000. And so we realized, man, this is a, an area of the, of the population, this is a group that we can serve, that we can minister to, that we can share the good news with. And yet what we've realized over these years is that, wow, planning three new campuses in 16 years has actually brought a bit of a challenge, specifically on our facilities. I don't know if you've driven through the Southwood parking lot. I don't even have to talk about it. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, oh, you mean that war zone? <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, you mean that place that popped my tire? Yeah, like, yeah, it's getting kind of rough. And so we had engineers come out and they looked at it like, oh my gosh. And so to like redo the whole parking lot, this is wild. I, I'm just going to say it. To redo the whole parking lot, it's $3.1 million. Can you believe that? Because concrete is apparently gold, all right? And so we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to do that anytime soon. But we recognize here at Southwood, we had a few people. I mean, it's, it's a hazard. It's a hazard at this point. And so we had these engineers that were like, hey, well, what if we just fix this, like, front area and the first row of spots? Like, what would that cost? What we found is that even just doing that, it's $400,000 to fix that part. But it's, it's something that we realized this is it's only going to get worse, it's one of those needs, it's one of those infrastructure pieces that we just, we have to pay attention to. And the reality is that we've realized that every single campus, we have this. Anderson, in their main auditorium, their electrical wiring is just like failing because it's just, that's just what happens. And so the electrical wiring for like their projectors randomly will shut off. They've had it on Sunday mornings. They have lights that just, I was over there for New Year's, the New Year's Eve service. And where I was sitting, it was, it was amazing. The light that was above me was just like, bzz, bzz, the whole service. I was trying to listen to Trey Jordan bring the word of God. And I was like, I don't know what God's trying to tell me. You know, like, <laughs> there's just issues. And so what we're doing, what we're trying to point our attention to, what we're trying to focus on here at Grace Bible Church over the next few months is what we're calling our Project 4x4 looking at our four different campuses at these really just, they're not like super excited, like, let's fix a parking lot. Oh, you know, like that's not what gets people going. But what it does is it enables us to continue to serve a community, the community around us. What it does is it enables us to, to disciple for years and years to come, to care for the next generation. If you have questions about this, of kind of how we're moving towards this, really, we're going to talk about this a lot more in depth tonight at our family gathering which is for members. So if you're a member of Grace Bible Church, if you're a member here at Southwood, we really strongly encourage you to come to Grace Family Gathering this evening. We're voting on elders and we're talking a lot about this project. What God has kind of put in front of us is like, man, we gotta, we gotta take care of this. Not because it, it's super fun and exciting and we all love parking lots, but because we know we care about the next generation. 
right? A society, an ancient Greek proverb, an ancient, a society grows great when old men plant trees under whose shade they know they'll never sit. So we need to be looking at the next generation, at these needs. Paul closes, uh, or one of his closing statements to Timothy is that he's being poured out. I'm already being poured out as a drink, as an offering, and the time for me to depart is at hand, and I've competed well, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and finally the crown of righteousness is reserved for me. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award it to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have set their affection on his appearing. That's what we long for. That's where this is all leading, right? That's what we have to remember. Building projects, learning the word of God, preaching the word of God, all of it. All of it is moving in that direction. The day that will come when we stand before our Lord in perfect glory and we receive the crown of righteousness where God says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we look to. That's where we set our affection. That's what I want us to to carry forward today. So let's ask the Lord to impress that upon our hearts and minds now. Lord, we thank you that you have given us God, this this high calling that, God, you've impressed upon us, Lord, this, this burden to bring your good news to the world around us. Lord, to share the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we know that that we in and of ourselves are incapable of fulfilling this mission, of fulfilling this ministry. So God, we just ask that you would continually bring us to yourself, that God, we would rely upon your spirit. God, we would rely upon your power and your strength, knowing that it's your truth that we share. God, it's your grace that we show. So Lord, we just pray that as we move into this new year, this new semester, that, Lord, we would remember that we still have the same calling. Got to be your ambassadors to our community, God, our workmates, our classmates, our families, and to all of the world. So if you would take this moment now as we prepare to sing and just ask the Lord, God, show me where is it that I can fulfill the ministry that you've given to me? God, do I have opportunities right now to to just share your grace? Lord, do I have opportunities right now to to speak your truth? Lord, do I have opportunities to, to look out and to reach out to others with this good news of Jesus Christ? Or God, do I have the opportunity to invest in the next generation? With my time, my talent, my treasure, whatever it might be, God, do I have that opportunity to look ahead, to pave the way, for future disciples who make disciples. Ask the Lord for that direction right now.